This Institute of Ideas podcast is called What is the Truth About Post-Factual Politics? and was recorded at the Battle of Ideas 2016 at the Barbican in London. This is a, a debate called What is the Truth About Post-Factual Politics? And you'll have started to hear that phrase, post-factual politics, particularly over the last six months, used to refer to certain phenomena. For example, the fact that Donald Trump uh, has described fact-checking as an out-of-touch, elitist media thing. Um, and uh, um, somebody was making the point the other day that you, there's no point fact-checking Donald Trump's speeches because there's no facts in them, right? So then you've got, around Brexit, we had Michael Gove, who made the now infamous remark, people in this country have had enough of experts, that led to a huge amount of outrage, particularly amongst academics, people in the science community and so on. It's sort of treated with some horror that even though the whole of the economic and the scientific and everybody part of the establishment lined up to tell people what was the evidence in relation to the best way to vote in relation to Brexit, 52% of the population ignored them. So this has led to a kind of existential discussion and crisis and all the rest of it around whether we live in a post-factual world where you can't trust, um, nobody trusts the facts, whether it's all over, people become over-emotional and so on. We want to dig in a bit deeper than that. That's the kind of headline bit, right? What's really going on? What does it all mean? What kind of society do we live in? What's our relationship to evidence, experts, facts, and so on? And also, how might those people who have been experts in the past kind of relate to this kind of new world? They all get, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, five to seven minutes each, I think, or five or six minutes each. Um, I'll introduce them in the order in which they speak, but then it's a public conversation for those of you who uh, have not been for... Oh, and for those of you who are new today and don't know me, I should have said, I'm Claire Fox and I'm the director of the Institute of Ideas. So we're going to start off, and I'm really delighted that he's here, um, with Dr Adam Rutherford, who I'm sure many of you will uh, uh, know of, and uh, know because you will have heard him on the radio. He presents BBC Radio 4's Inside Science and also uh, Curious Cases of Rutherford and Fry with Dr Hannah Fry. He's a, a science advisor on films such as Ex, Ex Machina, uh, World War II and a forthcoming sci-fi epic, Annihilation. He's a geneticist, a writer... And his latest book is The Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived, The Retelling of Human History Using Genetics. The thing about Adam is, is that he and I argue over almost everything, but he's always interesting when we do it. So I was delighted that he agreed to speak. We then have uh, Professor Frank Ferreira, who's a sociologist and social commentator, author of books such as Invitation to Terror, Culture of Fear... Authority, a sociological history, power of reading from Socrates to Twitter, and a new book, uh, What's Happened uh, to the University, which he's actually speaking on and about at the session this afternoon, and is a kind of regular uh, speaker at the Battle of Ideas because we consider him to be one of our public intellectuals who most inspires our work. We then are going to have Josh Lowe, who covers politics in Westminster, Brussels, and across the continent for Newsweek. Uh, Newsweek Europe have been our, uh, one of our media partners uh, on this festival and have published a fantastic array of 
uh, articles on their, on their blog this week. Um, Josh himself is particularly interested in immigration, asylum and the far right and was previously a digital editor at Prospect, who were also involved in the festival. Um, and we're delighted to have you, Josh. And then we've got Nina Modi, um, who is Professor of Neonatal um, Medicine, Imperial College London, a consultant at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital, President of the UK Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health, is extensively published in original research peer-reviewed journals, author of chap- chapters in textbooks, and a practising clinician. And in many ways is kind of... Um, uh, you know, could be one of the experts has been so written off. But the reason why she's here is because um, she and I had a meeting and we ended up talking about this very phenomena and we had such an interesting conversation. I thought, great, we'll get you on the panel. Um, and so she's very famous and we glad she's here. Right, so can we give them all a very warm welcome? <laughs> Your uh, opening provocation thoughts, Adam? Okie dokie. So um, I'm prone to a cheeky cigarette, as you well know, so I'm clearly not as rational as I'm made out to be. But I think my position is that... I, I think I disagree with the premise. I think that, uh, that this, this notion that we are in a post-truth era, I'm, I see no evidence, no significant evidence, that that is indeed true. And, and the reason I say that is because, as a scientist, we are conditioned to doubt... And we are conditioned to um, make decisions based on the best evidence possible. So it, while it's, I, I've no doubt it is true about the, the continuous stream of lies that come out of uh, Donald Trump's mouth and um, the difficulties that we've had in recent months with uh, Brexit and expertise, I, I think these are probably e- exceptional circumstances, and Donald Trump certainly is an exceptional person. Um, Michael Gove is a, uh, an interesting character. He's clearly scientifically illiterate. In 2011, when he was asking for more expertise in science teaching, um, he said that children should be taught about Newton's laws of thermodynamics. <laughs> Thank you. Sometimes when I say that, not everyone recognises that Newton didn't have any laws of thermodynamics. So again, I think that possibly those those three um, examples of what feels like we might be in a post-truth environmental era, I think are exceptional. And of course, science is precisely there. The scientific method's sole sole raison d'etre is to extract human perception from trying to understand what is correct and how the universe is actually built because humans are absolutely terrible at describing um, uh, objective reality And, and the scientific method is there to try and extract what we feel or what we see might be true with what is actually true. So I'm not sure that I see significant evidence that we're in a post expertise um, era, or at least that it's any different from how it's ever been. Here are some examples from the past. We'll, everyone will recall David Nutt being sacked for advising government on his um, drugs policy, which was, he says, evidence-based. Um, most of well, my children were raised uh, in primary school and taught uh, language using phonics. That was proposed as an evidence-based policy, but was clearly not, or at least the evidence was profoundly sub, suboptimal. Um, it, back in the 1980s, the EU and, and Britain did not adopt genetically modified crops as part of our agriculture, which again was a, against scientific expertise. Um, and, you know, we can go right back to uh, sort of flipping this on its head, that um, Churchill and um, other prominent politicians and, and 
thought leaders in the 1910s and 1920s were very pro-eugenics as a result of consulting with Francis Galton. I come from the, the Galton Laboratory, uh, so it's part of my intellectual heritage. Uh, and Britain never did adopt a eugenics policy, although America and Sweden and other countries did. So science and politics are very different beasts. Um, I, that, this, this is a, almost certainly apocryphal quote, but Eisenhower is said to have said not of scientists, but of economics, economists, that uh, give me a one-armed economist so that he can't say, on the other hand... <laughs> I'm not sure whether it's true, but it's a good joke anyway. So the, the scientific method is built on doubt. Right? It is the cornerstone of how we understand what is, what is correct or what we think is correct, and science is only ever provisionally correct. So it's always subject to revision. Now, the best scientific theories are the ones that that survive repeated um, attacks and repeated challenges. So, for example, Newtonian mechanics were correct uh, from the time that Newton um, drew them up until the advent of quantum physics in the 1930s, 1920s, 1930s. But the frame of reference in which they remain correct is much more important when you're designing a rocket or designing a train um, where quantum mechanics are are not so important. Um, we know, we're fairly confident that Darwinian evolution, evolution by natural selection, is a, a, a law of science that will not be substantially um, uh, revisited. Um, it, will, it will never be significantly upturned. It is basically correct. Uh, and there are many other examples of that. Now, I, I think, what, what I find interesting about this conversation is I think that the root of the problem with the, the, the types of issues that we're, we're discussing in the setup here is that it comes comes to how we learn science and how we teach science at school, and that science is primarily taught as a bank of knowledge, a fact-based system, whereas most scientists will tell you that science is a way of knowing, right? It is a a way of thinking. It is a way of extracting um, our own subjective experience from what we believe, how the universe works. So, you know, when, when I say things like that, you often get, people sometimes give counterexamples of heretical thinking in science. Now, I, I think that science is an inherently conservative um, way of knowing, and uh, in almost all cases, heretical thinking in science is, turn out to be extremely exceptional or thereby uh, dint of self-promotion. So uh, my, my suggestion is that if we had a culture in which Evidence-based thinking was inculcated from birth, very on, early on in the process of education, that we teach evidence-based thinking rather than science as a bank of knowledge. Then I think the 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 hostility towards so-called expertise um, might be less so. Um, and oh, how am I doing for time? One, one more point. And so I, I think that if, if we could inculcate our culture, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a, um, uh, an evidence-based policy tub-thumper. I think that there's plenty of decent evidence-based policy. I think there could be more. But I think we need to be honest about where we face the evidence and then decide that an ideology is going to be, be what we adopt. But those sorts of conversations need to happen with, with, uh, in an informed way, where people are, understand the issues from a scientific point of view, and then society, the demos, makes, makes the decisions about which policies we adopt. So ju- to, to wrap up, this, this idea that if we, instead of 
teaching people what to think we teach people children how to think then I imagine a future where people think less with their heart which is an organ evolved to pump blood around your body and more with their heads which is where all thinking takes place thank you Thanks very much. Great start, Adam. Um, uh, so your thoughts, Frank? Well, <clears throat> I think it's very much the case that uh, politicians have always been, uh, always lied uh, and, or been accused of lying. And ever since the modern era, uh, since the crystallization of what's called public opinion, there's been big debates about who has the monopoly over the truth. Uh, there's a lot of discussion in the 18th, 19th century about how lying through the media is going to disrupt uh, public political life, what's going to happen to the role of the experts. The discussion on public opinion in the 19th century was about the status of expertise and their capacity to retain authority over the domains of science and policymaking. So there's a, there is nothing really new uh, in the discussion that's going on now, except for one thing. I think what is interesting is the way in which in the last few years especially since the election where Gore lost the election, whenever that was, uh, there's been a continuous tendency to move into the domain of fact-checking, to almost accuse your opponents of lying, and to kind of create this uh, ideal that somehow these people are all a bunch of liars, whereas we, on the other hand, you know, sort of uh, are always telling the truth. And I think it's an interesting development, uh, and I think what it's got to do with uh, from, from as a sociologist, I think w the conclusion I would come to is that because a, a large section of the media and significant section of scientists and other, uh, other cultural elites are finding that their view of the world is being challenged and is not seen as received wisdom by a growing section of society, you know, they have to ask, ask well, why, why is that? You know, why is it that an idiot like Trump is more believed than we are by you know, a, a bunch of people in, in Georgia or somewhere else. Why is it, I just mean to, I spent a lot of time in Hungary, that all these populists seem to be believed, but we're not. And instead of engaging with their arguments and debating against them, we just call them liars. You know, that's a more comfortable way of dealing with this. And I think what's very interesting is that when people talk about post-truth, they're not talking about truth in any kind of philosophical or... Uh, in a sense, uh, intellectually informed way, they totally confuse truths and facts. I mean, the, the, the two words are used interchangeably in the political vocabulary, very much ignoring the fact that facts are not truths, and truth is much more than facts and evidence. As Jefferson said, we hold these truths to be self-evident. And when he said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, he was talking about a sphere, a realm that was much more than research shows, you know, or research says, right? There was something more going on there because there was almost a pre-rational, uh, uh, almost like a pre-political uh, sort of insight that he was capturing in his particular ideal of freedom and democracy that wasn't really quantifiable. You couldn't really measure it, but it was something much more than that. So, so fact-checking, particularly in America, is indeed, an, I think, to be a very insidious enterprise, not because I'm against the facts, but I ask myself, you know, what drives, what is the motive behind this new culture of fact-checking? 
And I, as a sociologist, draw the conclusion that fact-checking is really a, a way of avoiding confronting questions of value. It's much more difficult to, to uh, take up the values of Trump, that he, what he represents, or the values of your political opponent, than to count the number of slip-ups or mistakes or untruths that, that basically they, they say. And it's really a, a morally illiterate way of engaging with what are fundamentally important problems, where it is very important to enter the realm of value and to put forward what I take to be a democratic, Republican, not Republican Party, but Republican in the, in the classical sense, humanist, and you know, all these things have got to be asserted, not at the level of facts, but at the level of values. You know, what is it about freedom that is important? Or, or these are the kind of issues that we've got to deal with. Uh, and it seems to me that uh, you know, when it comes to facts, in any case, facts are also different than the meaning we give to them. And we confuse facts with the way we interpret them. And I think it's the interpretation element that's wrong. And in many ways, I agree with Gov on experts. I think experts are great when it comes to science and it comes to uh, them providing us with their version of the evidence. That's the role of experts. It's our role as citizens to interpret that and give that meaning. They can make policy recommendations, but they're not politicians. They, they're not expert politicians. They're expert medical doctors. They're expert biologists, expert physical, and, that, and we take that views very, very seriously. But just because you're an expert does not mean that political consequences directly come out of that. And that's really important because particularly in the Brexit debate, it was very, very clear that when you have economists telling us you know, their expert opinion on what's going to happen, you know, I don't take it particularly seriously. Given the track record of, ex of economic forecasting, you know, it, it is, you know, I, I'm allowed to have a little bit of a doubt about their prediction of their economic. I also know that, unfortunately, both sides lie all the time. I mean, immigration is something I'm very interested in. I happen to be uh, a completely liberal, I have a liberal ideas towards immigration, but I, I do get really worried how both sides just lie. You know, the, the right wing basically says immigrants have taken these jobs and those jobs and are responsible for everything, and then the opposition comes along and says, actually, there are, there are, there are, there are less immigrants go, coming into England than are, are going out. And they're making up these little stories. I mean, I'm East European, so I remember the stories about all the Poles were going to go back to Poland. I remember that. You know, or all the Romanians and Bulgarians were not going to come. Well, you know, if the life is better in England, you know, why would the Poles go back, not go back to, you know, stay in England? I mean, why would they go back to Poland? I mean, it, uh, history shows that immigration is towards a better world. There isn't a, a kind of going back home kind of process. And if you look at the way in which the debates are conducted, both sides are lying. I mean, one side obviously is immigrants. You know, uh, it's n not a problem. Only a handful of Bulgarians are going to come into England. The other side says millions are going to overwhelm us. And none of them are prepared to discuss uh, the issue of, of the rights and wrongs of immigration in a kind of substantive kind of a way. It's all, it's all very instrumentally. So the, the conclusion that I, I've kind of come to is that the real problem that we're faced with is that as you know, sort of the authority of the old political classes comes into question, we, we have a, a situation where, where people are not prepared to engage in public life at a, at a philosophical, at a political, at a values level. And therefore, what we are now entering into at the moment is a period 
where it's, you know, you know, it's my truth, not your truth. It's a kind of childish, infantile way of engaging with, 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 with human experience. And it seems to me that for those of us that have a positive, future-oriented political ideal, you know, we do need to uh, occupy the moral high ground. We do need to enter into the realm of values. Science has got no place in this, as it happens. Science has got a place within science. I think we have got to be, got to be very, very clear that politics and science don't always mix. And when they do mix, as is the case of Soviet Union, it always comes up with fairly negative, destructive consequences. Okay, thank you. Okay, so some, uh, some interesting counters there to uh, um, uh, the sort of premise and to just kind of uh, explore later. But in the meantime, uh, uh, Nina, your thoughts, please. I'm delighted to be here. I must say I'm not quite sure how I come to be sharing a podium with three very charismatic and eminent uh, and uh, great media personalities and the equally charismatic Claire Fox, but nonetheless I'm delighted to be here. But my very fact of being here, I guess, is something that should give the, the, the tone to what, what I want to say. Is I'm, I, um, I'm a, a medical consultant. Um, I happen to be working this weekend um, and I remind you, and I'm only here because a very kind colleague agreed to come in and step in and cover for me for a few hours, which is uh, why I'm disappointed that I'm not going to be able to spend the whole weekend with you. But the reason I give you this little anecdote is because I just want to remind you about a hashtag that some of you may have been, become familiar with over the last few months, which is, I'm in work, Jeremy. Um, do you remember that one? So I am at work, uh, and would have been had I not stepped aside for a few hours this weekend, and sadly I'm not young enough to be a junior doctor, I'm a consultant, um, and you will all of you remember perhaps that some of the difficulties that we've seen in relation to the junior doctor's strike over the last few months is the the statement that uh, there aren't any consultants around at the weekend, and they don't work weekends. So I just want to put that out there to, to start off with. Um, but let's get back to post-factualism. I think the term is a, is a bit of a nonsense, actually. Um, it's also a very unfortunate term because it's glorifying something that, uh, that is therefore going to give it some life of its own, and it would be much better if it didn't have a life of its own and it didn't, didn't con continue. The term itself, though, if we are going to use this term, is, is, has been defined as a culture in which debate is largely framed by emotion. That's the first point. And the second point is that it's also defined by a persistent um, refusal to accept the rebuttal of evidence uh, of, of, fa of factually incorrect statements that are being made, even though evidence is presented to rebut these. So there are two components to this term post-factualism. And, and the reason I think the terms are nonsense is because we've always had these two elements in any sort of public discourse. We've always, always had appeals to the emotions, speaking from the, from the heart, as Adam has put it. That's part of the human condition. We can never, never, ever get away with that. Um, but perhaps what we've been able to do as a society down the ages is actually constrain this legitimate um, appeals to emotion side of argument into particular culturally acceptable arenas. And, of course, the obvious example here is religion, because religion is fundamentally about belief, about emotion. It's not about logic. It's not about science. It's about what you believe. 
And we've always held in, in civilized societies that if people find comfort and solace in religion, that's absolutely fine. But it's only when religion starts to step out of its box and it starts to impose its will upon societies and cultures and behaviors that things go sadly wrong. So I think that one of the problems that we have with this use of the word post-factual politics is that we have allowed emotion to step out of the arena to which it, it, it rightly, rightly belongs. The other point, of course, is that um, I have to say politics has also always had its appeals to emotion, and this has been for both right and wrong. Let's take the founding of the National Health Service, which I consider to have been a very, very good thing indeed. That was pure ideology, really largely. Nye Bevan didn't go out and do a systematic review of the evidence to date and then decide to actually um, say he was going to found the National Health Service. It was based on a belief on what Frank has called you know, a, 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 a really deep-held view, and it was something that was supported by not everyone, sadly not the medics of the time, but, but a, a large swathe of, of society. So politics has always had appeals to emotion, it's termed ideology. Ideologies can sometimes be for good or bad. There are some pretty obvious examples of bad ideology. And, of course, the genocides we've seen around the world are perhaps the most tragic and stark consequence of poor ide ideology driving um, human behaviors and the behaviors of, of governments and, and politicians. So I guess I'd say that the consequences that we're facing now is that this particular genie has been let out of the bottle because we're allowing this, this rampant appeals to emotion to hold sway in areas where it really shouldn't hold sway to the extent that it is. Um, it's extraordinary that what we're seeing in the United States at the moment, but equally in our smaller island, it's extraordinary what we've seen in, uh, in, in recent times too. Um, let me give you some sound bites to emphasize that. The NHS is safe in our hands. Mr. Hunt is not imposing. This is the junior doctor contract. He never was imposing it. He never meant to suggest he was imposing it. He claims no one ever thought he was. And yet, uh, so that, that's the ruling of a court of law. And yet, um, there is uh, on record in a mul multiple number of venues and num multiple, um, mu multiple debates and, and pronouncements actually absolutely the op opposite of that. So it seems very strange to me, um, very, very strange indeed, that we don't recognize the harm that can come from acceptance of so-called post-factual politics. We wouldn't have had Brexit probably. We wouldn't have had the war in Iraq. We wouldn't have had a, a misogynist coming within a stone's throw of the White House. A whole heap of, of, of bad things would not have happened had we not let this particular genie out of the bottle. So I think that we, just as we require truthful talk um, in most, if not all, aspects of society, that's within the, within the law, in the city, in advertising, in the media, in the medical profession, in science, it seems to me self-evidence that we should, we should require exactly that same standard of integrity and good behavior in politicians. Thank you very much. See, that's why you're on the panel, because you're really interested. That was the point. Um, thank you. That was really uh, threw up a lot of the issues that I know are kind of at the heart of this discussion. So I enjoyed that. Thank you. Um, Josh, your thoughts? 
Um, so looking at this as someone who covers politics, um, I'm also a bit like Adam, not convinced that we live in a post-factual era. The part of that that I have a problem with isn't the factual bit. Um, you know, it's... A, Anyone would accept that our politics is sometimes, if not exactly fact-free, then definitely reduced fact. But the post bit I have an issue with, because that implies that there was an era of factual politics, and I don't know when that was. It was probably before 2003 and the drumbeats in Parliament leading up to the invasion of Iraq. It was probably before 1967 when Harold Wilson said that devaluing the pound would not devalue the pound in your pocket, a piece of nonsense far worse than anything said during the Brexit campaign. Um, it was probably before the Second World War when the Ministry of Information churned out uh, dozens of myths, some of which, by the way, still per, uh, persist to this day. If you tell your children that carrots help you see in the dark, you are a Churchill government shill. Um, and if we go back to the First World War, when Europe was taken into an orgy of self-destruction um, on the basis of a highly spurious claim by the Austro-Hungarian government that the Serbian government was involved in the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, they had shaky evidence for that. They had a sort of dodgy dossier, if you will. So I kind of... I I won't keep us here all day. I think you can get the makings of my point, which is that politicians have always looked for compelling stories to further their ends. If they can't find the raw material for those stories in the realms of fact, then they wander into the realms of untruth. Um, now, the other aspect of this that people often talk about and we haven't quite touched on yet is the media. Um, people say that we used to have a well-funded, um, hegemonic, well-read traditional media, which was very good at pulling up politicians when they made some of these claims. Nowadays, by contrast, we have a poorly funded media, which is very fragmented and not so well equipped to do that. Um, now, working in the media, I will accept that with newsrooms a bit less well funded than they once were, um, some sort of small fact-checking errors, accidental mistakes, that kind of thing does make it through more. But on the central question of uh, did the media used to be better at kind of sifting through competing narratives on a situation and finding the unvarnished truth and presenting it to their readers? I'm not sure that you can sustain that with a straight face. We could talk about Hillsborough. We could talk about the reporting of um, Jewish refugees fleeing the Nazis in the 30s, which was just as bad as any reporting on Calais today. We could talk about yellow journalism in the first part of the 20th century when newspapers would literally compete to make up the most bankable stories, put them on the front page and sell the most copies. Um, then, of course, there's the fragmentation point. It's true that nowadays, uh, if you're left-wing, you can live in your little left-wing online bubble. If you're right-wing, you can live in your little right-wing online bubble. But in the old days, uh, lots of people would have only read one paper. In Britain, at least, that paper would have been partisan. Um, sure, nowadays, there are uh, sort of zany alternative media websites um, putting out conspiracy theories, but there are also amazing fact-checking websites putting out incredible high-quality information that the electorate never would have had access to before. Um, so am I asking you to accept that everything is fine? No, everything is patently not fine. Um, we've just left the EU. No one's quite sure why. No one's quite sure what's happening next. We're within touching distance of uh, electing a far-right politician to the presidency of the United States and upsetting the world order. But the explanation for those things isn't an era of post-factual politics. You need to look at who it is that's using this phrase, post-factual politics, or post-truth politics is the other formulation. Um, and whenever I see it, I don't know about you, but it always seems to be people who you might broadly term liberals, people who are pro things like open borders, free trade, um, uh, the EU, uh, human rights, and all of that sort of thing. Um, 
these are people who are losing the argument in most of the West. Um, they are seeing vast swathes of their population thinking and acting in a way that they don't understand and often they hold in some degree of contempt. And so they're kind of losing the football game of ideas and instead of getting stuck back in and trying to store some goals, they're complaining to the, refu- uh, the referee about the quality of the pitch. Um, they're saying it's nearer of post-fact politics, how can we possibly win? And what I'd say to those people is that politics has never been about just facts. Politics is about taking facts, spinning them into compelling stories about the way that society works and power is structured to try and get people over to your side. If you look at the Brexit debate, neither side had a monopoly on fact or fiction. Both sides told colossal fibs and both sides had some truthful points to make. And the one that won was simply the one that told the most compelling stories. Um, So I guess I would say uh, to people using the phrase post-truth politics, uh, the issue is maybe you need to kind of stop whining and get stuck back into the title of this festival, the Battle of Ideas, as it were. Thank you. Um, Thanks, Josh. It's it's quite interesting because I just uh, wrote a piece on this issue. I wrote a piece on this issue and I made the point that one of the things that you've just said, which was... You know, it's also always used as a kind of insult. But it's, 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 I, don't, I don't even think it's about the politicians or the newspapers, but it's about the voters or it's about the people. So it's basically what's wrong with people that when presented with the facts, they ignore them. And so that's the way it kind of comes about. So I wanted to just ask both of you, because I'm about to go to the audience, but just let me just ask both of you. You know, um, Adam, you can pick up on anything anyone said, because we just haven't heard you from the beginning, but you'd sort of said about getting people to think about evidence-based thinking, you know, from school. Mm. But isn't there a kind of assumption there that the problem is is that people are thinking wrongly, if you know what I mean? Or... <laughs> well, not, not thinking wrongly, but when it comes to making decisions which should be based, based in evidence, so, for example, health-based, you know, health policy, uh, or um, uh, anything that has a sort of scientific base to it, which is a lot of things, right? You know, most, most of the major issues that we're facing at the moment have some sort of scientific um, uh, basis from which we can work. Climate change is a, is a, is a great example. When it comes to issues like this, I, I accept you know, that, that, that I don't blame the people for suggesting things that are wrong or for believing in things that are not supported by the evidence. Um, and, you know, the, the, the classic... Um, Cliche of this is is being sitting in a black cab in London, um, but I, I don't I don't I don't think that is a, I don't think we should we should attribute blame to, to those people for holding those views. What I think is more problematic is that we don't have within education a structure in which we are taught how to think, where where understanding the process of what what we can why we think why scientists think that climate change is, is a real and globally threatening um, phenomenon. Why we think that is as important as the fact of it, which is a fact. And I think that that is the thing that I find more problematic about having these discussions and, and, you know, the the conflict between what we're describing as being post-truth. Okay, thanks. Josh, anything? Yeah. Yeah, I I mean, I think... um one issue there is, uh, I actually agree with a lot of what Adam's saying, but I do also think that when we use the word uh, fact in a political context, we tend to mean something like an economic fact, i.e. something that we currently sort of measure in objective ways. And there are other things that motivate 
voters that we currently don't measure in objective ways. Things like people's attitudes towards immigration. Um, we measure that with kind of opinion polling, but it's quite a, it's, it's an inexact science. And so the Brexit vote, which was sort of probably largely driven by immigration, that's people acting on feelings that they have, which for them may as well be facts, which we uh, sort of don't measure and don't understand and therefore are quite ill-equipped to address. So I think it's, um, it, it, it is, you know, it would be good that if people were able to view the areas of policy that are kind of based on evidence with a better way of looking at the evidence. But there are also other factors in the way that people vote, which, which sort of we don't see as facts in the same way. Very briefly, there is, there is a media um, component to this, which Josh, Josh raised. And, and it's something that... So I, I am a presenter on the BBC, although not staff at the BBC. And it is, it is a subject that, in scientific terms, has been very important in the last few years. Some of you will be aware of enormous hassles and fusses about putting climate scientists opposite people like Nigel Lawson or putting evolutionary biologists opposite creationists. Now, this, this relates to something that Frank was saying, that, that um, those two... So just take climate change. Putting a, 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 an evidence-based scientific consensus or scientific um, worldview opposite an ideological worldview. That is not a battle of ideas. Those are two things which are incompatible in debate. And the truth isn't somewhere in the middle, right? Or or the facts are not somewhere in the middle. In fact, neither of those two things are somewhere in the middle in that type of debate. And so when the media presents uh, the balanced, well, purportedly balanced arguments, they're, they're actually being disingenuous to the process of what we can know, what it is possible to know, and what is an ideological position. And that's Really problematic. Okay, so uh, n- <laughs> Nina and Fran both want to come back, so I was going to ask you a question, but just say whatever you want to say. Yeah. Well, very quickly, I just wanted to follow on from a point that, that Adam made, which is to say that I absolutely agree that it's not, it, it's not about the nature of the fact that's, I think, the real issue, but it is about uh, starting very early with the very young, about training the mind to think, to think logically. And I just want to rem- remind everyone of, of the nature of science. Science is not about discovering the truth. There is no such thing as the truth in science. What there is is just ever-increasing, ever-reducing uncertainty. And it's for this reason that we have the concept of the null hypothesis. You never prove that something's right, but you actually you look to see what you can, whether or not the observed facts actually fit your hypothesis. So once upon a time, the Earth was, we believe the Earth was flat because it fitted the facts as we observed them, uh, as mankind observed them in those days. But as soon as the world was navigated, that no longer held true, and therefore we had to formulate another hypothesis, and another one, and another one, and another one. That is the nature of science, ever-decreasing uncertainty. Okay, thanks. Uh, Frank? Yeah, I, I think there's a danger of a, a double standard being introduced, which goes like this. The people are very emotional, and they kind of uh, sort of are driven by all kinds of uh, surreal, supernatural kind of phenomenon. Us scientists are cold and rational. We are devoid of any emotion. And uh, the problem then becomes the people. And, 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 and also we have these debates where you know, uh, there's a mismatch between these idiots who are, are driven by witchcraft and us who you know, are on the cutting edge of science. I and mean, that's the way it's kind of posed. In the real world, it's actually very different. I mean, scientists lie as much as politicians do. And if you go through the number of times, you know, sort of scientists uh, acknowledge that they said you know, that pregnant women mustn't drink any alcohol at all. But in their case, it's a noble lie because they, they know that if they allowed pregnant women to have a half a glass of wine, then they would abuse it and you know, become alcoholics. I mean, if you look at the number of times, you know, we have noble lies, you know, sort of, and they have ignoble lies. I mean, that's the kind of 
counterposition that you have. But I think there's also something much more fundamental, which is basically, you know, scientists are not devoid of groupthink. You know, despite peer reviews and everything else, there are certain kind of ways of looking at things, which, some of it which is very good, but some of it which is also kind of problematic. And, and I think that what is really forgotten in a lot of these debates is that uh, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what a scientist says about climate change, because I can, we can all accept the facts of the science, you know, absolutely unquestioned, but still draw a very different conclusion as to what should be done about it. Same thing with genetically, genetically modified food. All these things, you know, we, we can accept what the science says, but we move into the realm of meaning. And when you move into the realm of meaning, I think the masses, as Machiavelli said, the masses are on balance, have more wisdom than the, all the individuals who have this privileged authority that they kind of established. Because when push comes to shove, in a democratic society, you know, we have got to make those decisions. And just by the way, on emotion. I mean, the emotion isn't just in politics. I mean, we've, we celebrate emotion everywhere. But when it's the emotion of the victim, when it's the emotion that, that kind of psychologists celebrate, that's all right there. But when it's the emotion of the populace, it all of a sudden becomes a bad emotion. So I do think we've got to, you know, either have, you know, sort of admit that unbalance, we choose and pick what we want to kind of like and not like, and double standard is imminent in all of this discussion. Okay, one sentence, Adam, because we've got audience... Sure, I, I want to open up as quickly as possible as well. I, I can't let that lie, but I think that Frank is, is actually making my point for me when it comes to pregnancy. The narrative that you chose to use was factually inaccurate, but... The fact that the evidence changes over time with regards to pregnancy and advice on alcohol is exactly the point that I'm making, that the evidence does change, and that is the nature and the strength of science. And then if we were better at understanding that that was the strength of science, then we, it wouldn't be controversial. Right, sense, go, yes. One little thing on that. But before the evidence changed, I talked to a lot of public health people who actually told me you know, in confidence that they're quite prepared to say no alcohol, not because, because they knew that actually there was no problem with drinking a glass of wine. That was the Labour Party policy, yeah. and they no, admitted no, no, well, that. Just hold on, just hold on. Before yeah, we get... Right. Now we're doing a what he said, she said. It is also true that I was invited by mistake to a, uh, an NHS England event at which they discussed how it was very important that nobody ever conceded that a pregnant woman should drink despite the evidence. And then when I pointed out that this was malign, they said, what's she doing here? And I said, you invited me to speak. They invited me to speak by accident. That was only last year, right? <laughs> they had a long chat. And, one, and a few of them did say, some of the statisticians did say, we feel a little bit uncomfortable about the fact that we're using these statistics when they're wrong. Well, because they didn't know I was in the audience, they carried on this discussion. So... Come on. I just wanted to make an effort to try and overcome this sort of dichotomy between truth and emotion. And uh, for that, I wanted to use a relationship metaphor because I think society and politics is all about relationships. And I just had this metaphor of your girlfriend coming to you with, like, I really feel strongly about this issue. And you as a boyfriend just going, oh, actually, I checked and you're wrong. And this emotion ship, like, emotion is completely invalid. And I think... Politics is also about the same trust, about having this conversation. And I think in Britain and in many societies, it is exactly this conversation and trust that has been a sort of experienced an utter breakdown that I think we really need to address first before we can talk about like, how uninformed the masses are and uh, who's right. Thank you. I uh, just want to pick up on Adam's point about um, how it's disingenuous to counterpose and put opposite each other 
um, people who were sort of arguing around facts for climate change uh, and then some kind of Nigel Lawson ideological position. I think it's disingenuous to imagine that the people who are saying they're promoting facts are not themselves ideological. Uh, not, not just in the sense that you've just been discussing there where they're lying, even when they're telling the truth, there's an ideological notion that there is only one answer and the facts say there is only one answer. It's a way of closing down discussion um, and it is itself ideological. Um, I, I, do, I disagree so, so with that. So yesterday we had Tim, Tim, sorry, Tim Loughton yesterday, for example, talking about parenting and why wouldn't everybody want parenting classes and the experts. It's obvious. You know, the idea is that it's obvious. There's these facts here about you know, uh, how children are raised and all the rest of it. It's ideological. It, it closes down discussion. But the key, okay, no, the no, key Adam, idea within science is doubt. Yes, and so okay. I don't think there are scientists. Adam, right. so this is the he deal. didn't have any doubt they yesterday. They get to speak for a while and then you come back, right? <laughs> It's a public conversation. You're not here as experts. Right, I think, yeah. Um, I just... I campaigned during the referendum to leave, and I just wanted to say the... I would say politicians underestimate the public. I never met a single person I campaigned with on the leave side who seriously believed the NHS was getting £350 million a week. But as soon as the referendum was over, suddenly it was, oh, they believe £350 million a week. That's assumption. It's pure assumption. That that's the reason why people voted to leave, that they believed everything that Vote Leave was saying. They didn't come to their own conclusions. And in fact, the Electoral Reform Society's report after the referendum concluded that most people did not base their decisions on major politicians. David Cameron, in fact, was more likely to make people leave than to stay in what he said. That's what they concluded. So I think, again, it's a massive, massive mistake to just use Vote Leave as a proxy for why people voted to leave. OK, thank you. Right, let's... Yes. What I find more interesting about this whole post-factual, especially the term, is that it, as, as you said, it has always been the case that politicians have lied or that there must always be like the um, equilibrium be uh, between facts and emotions. I think that no one is discussing that. However, people are actively saying, I'm not going to listen to facts. I will believe that Obama is a Muslim, even though everyone has told me that it's not, just because I feel like it. And, and that's something that surprises me more in this discussion, like how people suddenly treat these two um, ways of thinking or like coming to the, the values and truth that make society. <coughs> I don't understand why Frank is dissing facts and fact-checking. Fact-checking is a really useful democratic device, how can you diss it just like that? How can you imagine that people come to beliefs about values in ordinary debate, not a non-religious debate, without making observations, without ever reading a book, without thinking about a single statistic? Of course they're related. And if you have one politician who, in the course of an hour-long debate, commits an astonishing, jaw-dropping number of factual lies. This is somebody who has a whole team briefing him, so this isn't a peasant getting it wrong. How can you possibly say that the two things are unrelated and in that sort of magic Govian way? It seems silly to me. Then there's a question. There is a question, which is this. This is, this is what Peter a, York, by the way. What about... You talk blithely about there being a long history of uh, you know, non-fact politics as if it wasn't getting any worse and didn't have the capability of getting worse. 
I'd ask you to think about media funding, because it's very important, media ownership. Today, AT&T is going, um, going to own Time Warner. All that stuff. And then the third thing, think about the contents of that amazing book, Dark Money, by Jane Mayer, which explains beneath the level of mainstream media, what has been done for 30 years to change the balance of the conversation about a whole range of ideas, including climate change. Is that fact-based? And they're the people, who, incidentally, who do the Obama is a Muslim stuff. First of all, I would like to see if any of you would be interested in elaborating about the role of social media in post-factual politics and citizen, citizen journalism, because I think it's really important. You know, some of the things that politicians said, then they spread really quickly on Twitter, and, that, and people share and share, and then really not factual things get spread. Um, drawing from George, George's um, point about living in the ideological bubble, I think, I think people can give facts about a lot of things and you can justify a lot of different uh, views through different facts and facts can be twisted all the time so I actually think that ideology and uh, believing in, in, in you know, where you're a socialist or whatever um, it has to do with a lot of belief uh, this sort of emotion you know, based thing so um, I think the most important thing about, about battling post-factual time if, it's, if it exists is basically b being able to look at all the facts not just the ones that justify your own point of view and I think that most of the time when you are trying to look for facts you are looking for facts that will, will, will validate your argument instead of actually trying to see what, what other arguments are out there and I think that's the real issue with um, this I work in the cognitive sciences and, and I find it it's kind of quite ironic that over the last 20 years we've been told that what we really need is more emotions and more feelings and reasoning and you know you've come across emotional intelligence and all of these things and it's been a huge move and then suddenly it seems that we've got this new, you know, post-factual, and people have really drawn attention to it here, kind of emotional politics, which we're now terrified of. You know, so there does seem to be some, some strange disjuncture here. But, but the thing I really wanted to say is in the, in the American presidential uh, debates, I mean, Hillary is, is, you know, it's the tangerine versus the robot. Hillary has kind of come across as continually saying, you know, check facts, check facts, check facts, and never seeming to want to enter a discussion about values, rather as Frank was sort of pointing to. And it does seem that she's almost been told to do this. You know, if she gets into a values discussion, she actually looks bad. And so there does seem to be a real problem here, that there's a kind of sense that we can't actually even communicate about values with those people out here. And that's a real problem, I think. Just as a secondary school teacher, I'm really interested to pick up on your point, Adam and Nina, about how we should be teaching children how to think as opposed to what is right and wrong. So if you could come back to that in a minute, that'd be great. Awareness raising I always finds interesting because it's experts that seem to want to make us aware, but they don't make us aware by just telling us something once. They seem to make us aware by telling us a thousand times, which doesn't seem very um, logical to me. I wanted to come back on Adam in terms of his, his relationship with taxi drivers. Um, <coughs> I, I almost would rather that you started shouting at the taxi driver than just forgiving him for he knows not what he thinks which seems a rather patronising way to approach uh, engaging with the public. This would be my scientific experiment for this weekend, would be to look at which speakers didn't turn up. And I bet you that the speakers that didn't turn up were the experts, the sort of policy wonks, technocrats, not the politicians and other people, but those type of experts. Because they don't really want to have a public debate. 
they've got a very negative approach to the public and they don't want to be challenged. And they often occasionally, in a few sessions I've been to, they're the ones that don't actually turn up, which seems to be a very anti-rational approach to the public, which seems to be part of what being an expert is today. Although, to be fair, there is a, there is a lot of illness going around. <laughs> and to be secondly fair... Not that many people haven't turned up. It's just that a number of them that didn't were on his panel. So that's why. <laughs> so so I, I don't know that we can draw a kind of thesis from that point. Anyway, yes. People do like to read things that validate their own opinions, but they, do, they also like to go and find things that challenge them. We have created, using digital media and hyper-personalisation, a world where it becomes difficult to find things that challenge you, and therefore people can give in to the idea that, that they can just accept things, that, uh, read things that they like to read. And there are financial incentives to do that, and there are market structures that are doing this more and more. So I wonder what the panel think about that as potentially causing this situation, if it exists. OK, thanks. Right, quick whiz along the panel. Josh. Um, so on the, there's been various points made about social media at that point just there and also another point about, uh, that a lady made up there about people uh, sort of willfully ignoring facts. Um, I think that it's what social media has done has just meant that we are able now to see the kind of mad, irrational conversations that people have and have always had. Um, you know, before we had Twitter, there was a social medium called The Bloke in the Pub who disseminated lies that would turn Donald Trump's hair white. And I think that also it is possible to find things that disagree with you. Yes, sure, behaviourally we might be discouraged from doing it, but it is actually in some ways easier. Um, The other thing I wanted to respond to is a lady down here talking about uh, the kind of two-way relationship with the public politicians need to have. Uh, This is a real problem, and it's part of what I was talking about. You see it in Jeremy Corbyn's Labour and the Remain campaign, would be two examples I'd cite recently, um, people who are just not willing to see the writing on the wall and listen to what thousands of voters are telling them and adapt their views accordingly. And if they were more willing to kind of engage in the sort of values debate that we've talked about here and less obsess uh, over whether everything is exactly correct or not, they might be slightly better at that. Okay, thanks. Adam. Okay, um, so first, in reverse order, the taxi driver thing. I, I, I'll, I'll engage with the taxi driver depending on my mood. It was quite late at night, and he said the line, um, well, when it comes to um, Clinton and Trump, they're as bad as like, each other, aren't they? Which I don't think is true. I, one, one of them's a misogynist and a psychopath, and the other one is an eminently qualified politician who you may or may not like. So I didn't engage in that, in that um, situation because it was 1 o'clock in the morning. Um, however, I do. I, I, I think the, the, um, I think this is why things like this are so important. I, I don't want to say what is right. I, the, the, there is a way of presenting um, scientific evidence in a informed way in which the idea should win. That, that's what I was trying to say at the beginning. That ideologically is, is, is a position one can take. But as long as we're honest about that, um, so that was that was one. Uh, Quickly on climate change, there, I'm, I'm, science is done by people, right? That that is part of the scientific process. Even though I said that um, it, the, the whole point of the scientific method is to extract people from from understanding how stuff works. Uh, when it comes to climate change, which was your specific example. I don't think there is an ideology. I think there is plenty of debate within the scientific community about the impact of climate change, how fast it will happen. I think there is a lot of um, spurious things said and some problematic things said by scientists, but we're talking about errors of margins, none of which include the uh, challenging the fact of climate change and the basic idea that it will have an impact on, on um, the world, which is not the same as what 
ideologues such as, I think, Nigel Lawson might say in that example. One, one more, on teaching, I also teach in a secondary school, um, and I, I, we can talk about this further at a later date, I think it is the curriculum's fault. I, I, I think t I see teachers, when I communicate with teachers, which I do a lot, that so many of them are so frustrated by the limitations of what fact-based teaching you have to do within science and with, within the various scientific disciplines, and that there is very little scope to say, um, let's do an experiment, what do we think about this, how do we work this out, rather than learning that this is what happens and this is why we know it. Okay, thanks, Adam. Yes, Frank. Yeah, on, uh, on fact-checking, on Peter's point, the point I was really getting across is that when you have uh, a historically significant debate, which is highly polarized with you know, really important issues at stake, I do worry when you know, people try to resolve the, the rights and wrongs of that debate by fact-checking, which is the, the formulaic response that you now get in the United States. Fact-checking has become almost an ideology that is, is not, not about the, the, the truth or, or the... Or the falseness of something, but it becomes a way of trying to sort of make a political statement. And when you make political statements in that kind of a way, you do almost impoverish the quality of public life, and that's really what I'm against. Having said that, there's an interesting development. I think the point you raised there about the way that a lot of people say, I don't care about the facts, the way people say, it doesn't really matter, you know. In one sense, it reminds me of the way that religious people used to react to the Enlightenment. You know, the Enlightenment's truth was, you know, I don't care if, you know, what, what they say, almost like hiding behind God. But I think there's also something else going on, which is that people have become demoralized by the kind of authoritative statements that are made by them and the way they represent their truths uh, as, as alienated and, and estranged people from public life. And I think it's the question of trust that the young women raised over there, that's fundamentally that there's a complete mistrust. And what we are really seeing is an unprecedented contestation of political and cultural authority, which is occurring. That's what we really, do. that's what this whole dis discussion is about. Who's, you know, it's a contestation of who's got the authority to make statements that, that are value of the statements that are, are really sort of quite important for us. Just one last point on, on ideology. I, I do think there is within science, you know, genuine science, which we all respect for its, its attempt to raise that and skepticism and, and the way it struggles to make sense of the world. But there's also a, a phenomenon which is ideological, which is, in my discipline, we call it scientism. And what scientism is, is the inappropriate use of science in domain where it's got no place. So I'm, not, I'm very much interested in child rearing, and there are all these, there's this new breed of parenting experts. Well, the parenting experts, when I first met them and went to Glasgow, turned out to be a bunch of nuns who, ne who never raised children. They had very strong views about the right way of bringing kids up. I don't know who made them parenting experts. But you now have a whole breed of relationship experts, life coaches. I mean, there's a, you know, th there are more experts than rats now, literally. I mean, every, <laughs> every area of life seems, seems to have them. So there's a sense in which science is used quite actively as a way of making ideological statements. And I think... That, that, that element should not be forgotten because it has an unprecedented importance in our life. And if, if you're worried about Obama being a Muslim, which is worrying, people believe that, just remember what they used to say about Jews killing young innocent virgins in, in, and the way that was believed. <coughs> Conspiracy theory making a really big comeback, unfortunately. 
Okay, thanks. Thanks a lot. So, first of all, in relation to the taxi driver or, you know, the man in the pub, the Joe Bloggs in, in, in the street, uh, are all of you familiar with the most recent veracity index from Ipsos Mori? Because it puts... Uh, so, this is who, who, who the public trusts. So, uh, from most trustworthy to least trustworthy, you have doctors, teachers, judges, scientists, and then wait for it, hairdressers. Hairdressers coming in um, above the police and way, 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 way down at the bottom... Well, you know what's going to be down at the bottom. It's, po- it's politicians. So that, that tells us exactly what society thinks of various groups of, of people. When it comes, though, to um, uh, why we should have got, got, got to this, this position in relation to politicians, I suggest that one reason which hasn't been raised so far, which I want to raise, is that it may be because of the debasement of the civil service. It, the job of the civil servants used to be to provide that dispassionate summary of the facts and the evidence, which then enabled politicians to make judgments on behalf of all of us. But the civil service has now largely been replaced by a whole fleet of special advisers. Uh, they do not have the professionalism of the civil service. So I'd like us to perhaps focus on that. And finally, finally, thank you. Finally, I, I just in, in relation to evidence and the question from, from the lady here, I, I think that when I say teach children how to think logically, teach all of us how to think logically. I have to repeat, science is not about absolutes. Science is about understanding how evidence is acquired, the changing nature of evidence, and how if we have to change what we do to fix the facts, that's absolutely fine. The number of times that I've had um, uh, discussions with journalists and they say, but you have to say X, and I say, well, actually, I'm not going to say X. I'm going to say it might be X, but it might not be X, but this is what the facts tell us for the moment. And that doesn't, unfortunately, that isn't what gets printed in the newspapers. It's, it's the expert says X. Sorry, expert didn't say X. Expert said X might be the case. Okay, thank you very much. I'd like to make a couple of points about about truth and ideology and science. I mean, for one thing, just picking up on something that you said earlier, you said that there's no such thing as truth in science. I mean, that's not quite true, because as a scientist, an engineer and a researcher, I believe in the truth, you know, that there is a truth out there that I'm always trying to get ever closer to. I know that I'm never actually going to reach full understanding of it but you've got to believe that there's a truth that that, you know the universe does work in a particular way and that our models will get better and better and i mean i also believe that there are truths in politics and there are truths about human nature and these things as well and if we don't well well then what's what's the point of having debates about things or you know searching for those things and just finally just on ideology i mean you, you said there's no ideology in the climate change discussion well that's completely false i mean there is science behind climate change, but the politics and ideology is all about how we respond to it. Now, I'm an engineer. I believe that we should try and engineer our way out of it, but that is seen as hubris and so on. These are ideological things that are actually stopping us responding to climate change in particular ways. Uh, yeah, I, I had a fascinating couple of very, uh, really interesting conversations yesterday with a 22-year-old um, police officer who... Um, it, was, it was absolutely fascinating to talk to him because he was very enthusiastic about his job and was highly intelligent, but what he was really not very interested in was enforcing the law because he didn't think that was worth doing because that resulted in prisons, uh, costly uh, prison solutions to problems, and they actually don't work it anyway. So what he'd been trained in over a, a couple of days' uh, training course was child development. And so he's now being tasked in the West Midlands with going into families preemptively 
and trying to identify problems of development in children. And I thought it was, I mean, it, news to me, and I thought I knew about this stuff, uh, that this is what's going on. So he thought that he could step outside his actual area of knowledge and judgment and become, in the course of a couple of days, an expert who could identify problems of child development in a child in a family. And I, so why are we all encouraged to step outside our actual basis for knowledge and judgment into another one that becomes incredibly trivial and shallow and actually very dangerous in a situation like that, I would say. I would like to pick up two Frank's points. Uh, you said that some scientists lie, and you also said that politics and science doesn't mix, and you reinforced your, your, your claim by, by making an example of Soviet Union. But I'm very sorry, I think you, mix, uh, you confuse scientists with frauds. Frauds like Lysenko, who was... Uh, you know, um, and one last thing. Uh, I also would like to in introduce David Hume in the conversation, who m m made a clear separation between facts um, and values. Uh, so the, these are, are not mixed with each other. Uh, Adam, not to, I'm not sorry to pick on you because you've been the most vigorous in, in uh, pointing, uh, putting your views across. I just wondered the um, the thing about uh, Trump being a psychopath. Is that a fact? Should I should I fact check that? Or, As the words came out that, of my mouth, I was that. Was that a value judgment? I, I, and, um, sorry, I regretted you, no, saying no, 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 that. Shut up. Before, before uh, um, have you ever told anyone, and this is actually a question for everyone else as well, uh, has, it, has anyone ever told anyone to trust their gut, um, go with their intuition, and are they being irrational in suggesting that? Yeah, I think um, totally the problem uh, kind of is that it's this whole idea of beware of false prophets. Science can say one thing, and then to get it into the public... You need to go through journalists who frequently aren't scientists or politicians who have their own game or people who are trying to define public policy. And actually, I think Adam's right, the big answer to this is actually um, integrating the general public with actually how science is done, thinking like scientists, exposing them more to the actual kind of debate that's going on in the scientific community rather than filtering it through all these other mediums. Um, this is directed to uh, Nina and Adam. Your description of what you think science is, to me, is a form of naive inductivism um, and is very Popperian. That's an example of an ideology. There isn't any fact... Uh, it isn't a fact to say that science works this way of, of sort of falsifying stuff and we get closer to, to the truth. That's a value judgment. One I would disagree with and say that, that actually science works in a different way. So there's things like, you know, paradigm shifts and actually um, what you're describing is more puzzle solving than necessarily how the production of scientific knowledge has worked. And that's, that's an ideology in itself. And actually you can't separate politics and ideology from the production of scientific knowledge. So we've heard talk about uh, the uh, taking um, evidence versus ideology, evidence versus uh, emotions. Another role, the big role that politicians actually have to play is in the interface between evidence and the fallibility of forecasting, complexity and unintended consequences. So two really quick, huge examples. Every life that you save through an advancement in scientific medicine contributes to the overpopulation of a world and its potential destruction. And every, uh, every piece of evidence that climate change cannot be ignored cr uh, creates a world in which you have to make huge decisions about committing resources to things that nobody can prove through evidence will work or not in reversing climate change. Okay, thank you. A lot of people are going on about ideology, which is valid in its own right, but I would like to ask the panel, to what extent do you think this era of post-factual politics is down to a genuine lack of public speaking ability from politicians? If you look at a lot of today's politicians, they have all the charisma of a wet piece of lettuce. 
And if they can't lie, if they can't lie, then they've got nothing else to get them out there and looking like, oh, I'm a politician, I can do things, I can make a statement. Maybe if they actually knew how to talk to people and convince them, then they wouldn't need to lie in the, fa- in the first place. I was, just, I was reminded when you said that, though, that in the existential angst that's gone on amongst experts about why they were ignored post-Brexit, there's been all these articles written about, oh, everybody reads tabloids and believes them. So what we've got to do is send scientists and economists and experts on, on training courses so they can learn how to speak slowly to the people and even in one instance where people were saying what we should do is organise for scientists to go and do a tour of working men's clubs and the thing that really struck me was that they just assumed that if you spoke without the jargon and people understood the experts that we then agree with them you seem to me to miss the bloody point right because people didn't not understand what the experts said they didn't agree with what the experts said, which is a very different ballgame. I think um, Frank is right that we need to um, focus much more on values, and I think Michael Gove is also right that we have had enough of experts. Um, yesterday that came particularly, became particularly clear when someone from the audience said uh, in Turkey President Erdogan was uh, holding a national referendum whether he should be made president for life. And uh, this woman said, I think the Turkish people are ill-disposed to make this decision because they are being misinformed. The facts are not being presented to them. And I just thought, what kind of facts would make you elect President Erdogan for life? (laughs) It's not a factual question. It's about whether it is right or wrong, morally speaking, of electing this tyrant (laughs) as giving him such great power. And you can transpose this as a Brexit debate. It's not about money. It's not about whether we would be better off or worse off reducing it to numbers. It's about whether we are for democracy or not. And talking about experts and facts is just evading the values. I was just wondering if you think, because especially in the US, we've seen such a massive polarisation of politics between like Democrats and Republicans. And you've got like Republicans saying that they'd rather their children marry criminals than Democrats. And and so do you think people are now are people are becoming so fixed in their own ideology that they're choo- they're basing the they're choosing their facts or lack of based on their ideology rather than choosing that ideology based on the given facts. Here's what experts do. First they make a whole host of assumptions. Secondly, they play around with the data that they've acquired on the basis of those assumptions, and thirdly, they draw conclusions. Now, all three of those processes need to be contested. If it's a scientific matter, then maybe it's a scientific community that should contest those processes. But the problem we have now is that this expert opinion is being deployed in public policy, and all three of those processes need to be contested by the public. The problem, however, is that when expert opinion is deployed in public policy, it's said to be beyond contest because it's the opinion of an expert. In other words, it's behind a curtain um, drawn across by the expert. And it seems to me this is why it's so problematic, because the elite who cannot win an argument with the people, are constantly forced to rely upon expert opinion simply because by mischaracterising it in the way they do, they are able to say it is not a matter that people can contest. Adam's idea about evidence-based thinking from birth uh, would remove hostility to experts. That's what you were suggesting. Isn't it about what the evidence means? Isn't it about understanding statistics? And and is that being taught enough? Do children understand how to make decisions according to evidence? Um, I'd just like to contribute a uh, concrete example 
of a policy decision where I think the facts, the facts are relevant to that decision. So in recent times, we've had this idea that we should tax soft drinks. And the reason for taxing soft drinks is because there are all sorts of negative health effects associated with drinking soft drinks. And so the idea is we tax soft drinks more to coerce people into drinking less soft drinks. Now, that fact that soft drinks may be bad for you is irrelevant. The actual philosophical um, juncture that you're at with this decision is should people be free to make their own life decisions, even if they're bad, according to the experts, or should they not be free? And that is really the political debate you're having. The facts are irrelevant um, in that case. Okay, thank you very much indeed. That was very useful. Yes. Um, I just wanted to ask a question about whether fact-checking actually begins to unravel science, because... Um, one thing that struck me yesterday, and um, I was being attacked most of the day by the millenniums, as I'm an old person, um, but um, the, the, suddenly there was a question of the, um, the pill that I know that I took when I was younger. Um, and obviously, um, in the area of childcare and um, periods and all those sorts of things, there's been questioning about Tampax and, you know, lots of things that have been progressive seem to be through pack fact-checking being questioned now. And I just wondered if fact-checking can actually be a very negative, unravelling thing. Right, so in reverse order, um, uh, can we have, Josh, your final thought, please? Um, so there was a point made up there about um, maybe if politicians were better public speakers, they wouldn't need to uh, rely on, on lies. Um, the best public speaker I've ever spent time with is Nigel Farage. I spent a very interesting day on his Brexit battle bus before the referendum. He is a remarkable... Um, uh, communicator. People come up to him, half of them scream, fuck off, the other half shake his hand, and he deals with both of them fantastically. But to bring that round to another point that was made down here about is there any such thing as truth, and other people have talked about, you know, are there um, can evidence actually exist that is impartial? I believe there is such a thing as truth. There is evidence that can exist that is impartial, and that's why it is imperative that politicians who care about those kinds of things learn the sorts of skills, or, or, or ones are found who have the sorts of skills, that people like Nigel Farage have. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Nina. Right. Thank you. So four quick final points then. The first comment uh, in, in, in relation to, to free choice, let me just remind the audience that children and babies don't have free choice. They are, they are very vulnerable to what adults do around them. So when we couch arguments in, in, in saying, you know, it's free choice for us to smoke ourselves, sorry, Claire, um, drink ourselves or eat ourselves to death, actually that doesn't hold good for little children. And so that, bear that in mind when you're talking about free choice, please. The second is um, let's not confuse technology with science. Yep, if we've got a problem, we want to put man on the moon or whatever, we have a problem, let's solve that problem. Technology can help us solve that problem. That's different from science, which is, I agree with you, somewhere out in the infinite distance there is truth. We will never get to it. But science constantly strives to reduce the uncertainties that are before us. Um, it's really important that it's not just little children, but all of us are actually educated in, in, in logical thinking. One of my first brush-ups with politicians was when I... Probably, probably stupidly, questioned a very senior figure uh, upon whether or not he understood the difference between association and causation. That got me into a lot of hot water indeed. Um, and then the final point I'd make, uh, which is uh, someone I think in the, in the middle here made a point about um, uh, uh, technology and scientists saving lives. Let me just say as a medic that our job is not only about saving lives, but it's also about helping people have good deaths. Please feel free to fact-check me what I'm going to say. 
I think a very good example of what we're discussing uh, about the inappropriate use of science or when science becomes ideology is the way that neuroscience today it seems to be able to explain everything that goes on in the world. So one morning I wake up, I, I'm told that the reason why you're a conservative is because this bit of your brain you know, sort of is kind of out of line with that bit of your brain. Um, and then the day after, I discover that the reason why you know, sort of certain children grew up to be doing poorly in school is because this bit of the brain has been messed up by their parents who didn't read enough to them or sing enough to them. And when you think of all the claims that are being made about neuroscience, virtually every single prejudice in the last two centuries is now, you know, which used to be argued that, for example, attachment parenting, that unless the mother spends the first three months literally next to the child 24 hours a day, that's going to be a huge problem. We now discover that neuroscience has, tells us that that's actually true. So neuroscience has become this ideology that you know, is used to explain everything. I think that if I was a genuine, yeah, a genuine scientist, we want to take a step back and ask how is it that all of a sudden every dimension of human experience cannot be explained by how our brain works, you know, which bit of our brain and everything else. What has happened? You know? And I don't think you need a PhD in skepticism to, to actually understand that something bizarre is going on. The one thing I want you to think about is double standards. Right? The double standard, I think a double standard is when you worship emotional intelligence, when we tell children in school that we have to change the curriculum and make it more therapeutic, and we have to you know, make them more, uh, validate them by you know, various emotionally oriented discourses, and then at the same time criticize the electorate for being emotional. Uh, you've got this kind of real interesting phenomenon. So basically what we're saying, that kind of emotionalism is okay, but this kind of emotionalism is, is really bad. And I, and I do think that when you scratch the surface, there are too many double standards going on there. And I far rather we just took ourselves a little bit more seriously and argued our case, you know, sort of uh, come what may. I am a preparian broadly, although I dislike the label, but um, uh, I don't think that paradigm shift exists. And I think that Thomas Kuhn was singularly the worst thing to happen to uh, the philosophy of science in the last 100 years. That's one. There is ideology in climate change, absolutely. And I didn't mean to imply that there wasn't, uh, but I was trying to talk more about the facts. The, the data as it stands. I also think that geoengineering is probably our best hope, but that's a different discussion. I regret saying psychopath. As the word came out of my mouth, I thought that's not the right word to use, but it's probably true. Um, <laughs> but finally, finally, now, this, this is to Claire. There is a great tradition of scientists going to working men's clubs throughout the, the 20th century. Some of the great scientists, JBS Haldane being um, possibly the best example, toured around the North, patronising, I think, is it what your implication is, the working men of, um, of, of the North. I, 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 I think it's a wonderful thing that science communicators should do more of. But, and that relates to my main criticism of this discussion, which is to, directed towards Frank, which is that, as so often is the case in sociology, if you decide what is true before you have the argument, then we're not talking about the same sport here at all. I don't know where you get your neuroscience information from, but I spend my life with neuroscientists and geneticists, and none of them say the things that you just said. And furthermore, you undermine your own argument about expertise by saying scientists are saying all these things about parenting, and your only example was nuns. Nuns are not scientists. These are different ball games we're talking about. Uh, thank you very much. Great panel. Well done. 
Thank you for listening to this Institute of Ideas podcast. If you would like to listen to more of our podcasts or subscribe to them, go to instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast.